0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. This year sees the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War, the legacy of which continues to be felt across the globe, especially, of course, in Germany. For a new BBC World Service documentary, Germany, Justice and Memory, the historical broadcaster Chris Bowlby has visited the country to explore how it has come to terms with its Nazi past. Our editor, Rob Attar, met up with Chris at New Broadcasting House in London to find out what he discovered.
1: Internationally, I I think Germany has quite a good reputation in terms of how it's come to terms with the dark aspects of its history. Do you think that's well-deserved?
2: Certainly compared to other countries, one could name Austria, for example, which always presented itself as the first victim of Nazism and never did very much, Uh, the Germans have been seen in, in, in public to talk a lot more about their Nazi past. And there's a lot that's very real in all that, in terms of the way in which they build it into their education system, the way in which their politicians will talk constantly about it. But what's interesting, if you look back at the actual reckoning in the broader sense than the judicial sense There was a lot of talk of doing that earlier after 1945, but in practice, not very much of that happened. And at the same time, within particularly those earlier post-war generations, and even to an extent today, there was a constant sense of evasion of full responsibility of, this is too awkward, let's keep quiet. Oh, we must concentrate on rebuilding our country. It's all much too difficult. So an awful lot was swept under the carpet.
1: But has that actually improved in more recent decades?
2: I think it's improved to an extent. I mean, partly, uh, some would say too late, of course, many of those who were most directly involved and held senior positions uh, died before justice could be done. I think there has been more attention paid to certain sectors that received virtually no attention shortly after the war. For example, slave labour, I think, would be a very good example. The were German enterprises, which profited enormously from slave labour, which caused huge misery, was happening pretty much under the noses of people in urban areas. And those same people who were profited during the war from slave labor went on to prosper after the war in West Germany uh, and and virtually no compensation was paid. And I think that's one of the most shocking things to me in looking at this history. Uh, We're familiar with some of the more uh, well-known trials of Nazi leaders, Nuremberg and so on, but this question of slave labor was much broader and was virtually unaddressed for many decades.
1: And you just alluded to the trials of Nazi leaders, and an interesting thing that comes up in your programme is the fact that these are potentially still ongoing. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the work that's still happening to try and track down the last surviving Nazis.
2: Yes. Initially, of course, it was the responsibility of the occupying powers after the war who set up the Nuremberg trials. And that was also meant to be, if you like, the familiar ones, the Hermann Görings and so on, was at the apex of a system that was meant to be much broader led by the Allies occupying um, the western zones of Germany and also in the communist uh, area, which became East Germany, they also had their own trials to an extent. Uh, But um, what happened very quickly was that there was an emphasis on... Uh, reconstruction. The Cold War began to set new priorities for those occupying powers and so quite quickly, late 1940s, early 1950s, that initial effort ebbed away. As far as the new states were concerned, East Germany and West Germany, the East Germans quite quickly wanted to say, yes, we were very anti-Nazi but wanted to claim that we are now, if you like, the Nazi-free part of Germany, the purer, morally superior part of Germany. So, continuing to hold trials of those Nazis who remained on their territory wouldn't have worked for that. So that, that meant less emphasis. In Western Germany in the 1960s, there were some very conspicuous trials of, uh, for example, Auschwitz camp guards or those involved in the so-called Einsatzgruppen before the death camps were established who were massacring civilians, Jews, others in Central Eastern Europe, which did create some publicity. There was also the Eichmann trial um, in Jerusalem, Adolf Eichmann, who who had helped plan the Holocaust, who who was captured abroad and then brought back to to Israel. So what happened then was that the, the West Germans decided they needed to have a body given the task of investigating what had happened in war crimes. It was set up. Quite modestly, because they were aware that many Germans didn't like this idea, that uh, there were many war criminals still living within German society, in Ludwigsburg, near Stuttgart, um, in in the south of Germany, and it's still there to this day, and it has amassed a huge amount of information about uh, sites of crime, about what was done, evidence. There was a new wave of evidence after the end of the Cold War when suddenly archives and people were free to communicate from Central Eastern Europe where many of the war crimes took place. But there, they can't themselves prosecute. What they do is they pass on evidence to prosecutors and still for a long time there were very few cases in which it was thought that a successful prosecution could take place. They're still going now and they know that the only individuals they're going to be able to prosecute now, probably in their 90s, who must have had very junior positions. But one quite interesting legal change in recent times is partly because of the law on terrorism, it's now possible to achieve successful prosecutions you don't have to prove that an individual was personally responsible for a death, but a, there are notions of being present at a site where war crimes were committed, which can involve an idea of guilt. So still there's this feeling of political and moral obligation, if you like, to continue this work. But it is quite a strange atmosphere these, for these individuals still researching, wondering, will we still manage any prosecutions of these now very old men, nearly all men?
1: And is there much opposition to the idea of trying people so long after the event? Some of them are obviously very well, they're all very old, potentially in poor health. Does anybody feel that this is not the right thing to do?
2: There are people who say yes, why put all this effort in, who worry about it in the sense that they say it's it, it's it's placing too much emphasis on possibly the wrong individuals? They worry in that sense. There's always been a strand in German society that Says, oh, the country was misled by really not a fundamentally German elite, a kind of outside alien group, and most Germans uh, could do nothing and and weren't guilty. More recently, something that was muttered, if you like, in private, but not much said in public, has entered the mainstream political debate more. There are uh, parties doing very well in, in in Germany now who take a more aggressive line, if you like, on German nationalism, German patriotism. And a part of that is to say we must no longer continue to be uh, shamed internationally by this idea of Nazi guilt. So it is that kind of viewpoint, why are we going on with these prosecutions, why are we going on and on about Germany and Nazism, has actually become more of a matter of public debate in recent years in some ways.
1: How far do you think the German people understand the totality of the Holocaust? Something we've covered in the magazine in the past is how so much of it was beyond the death camps and beyond Auschwitz. Is that something that ordinary Germans know about?
2: Slowly, I think they are learning more about it. But I think uh, the particular focus on, say, the death camps did for a long time buttress the idea that this was something that happened a long way away from most Germans, far away in the east, as it was termed. uh, And It took a very long time for people to understand more of how the death camps were part of a huge complex that reached right across German society, and also that the persecution of the Jews and others ended in in the horror of the death camps, but often began with very small steps that were happening within German society and that were visible to a a far greater number. The same uh, is true of other Nazi war crimes, which have now become more to the fore, like the persecution of slave labor, which was often happening in German towns and cities pretty much in plain sight of, of Germans themselves. so I think slowly that's that's coming to the fore and I think also, What uh, German historians, German public debate, and indeed other historians from outside have been trying to understand more and more is how, if you like, the kind of lower level, more mundane kinds of support for totalitarianism, the denunciations that led to deportations or the turning of a blind eye uh, or just simply failing to see what was happening and, and people consoling themselves with the idea this was nothing to do with us, how that all sustained a system where the perpetrators might have seemed like a relatively small almost deranged minority but they could only do what they did because a much wider system and a society gave them some kind of even if tacit support.
1: And has this led to any kind of rift between the generation that supported Nazism, voted for Nazism, participated either directly or indirectly in the Holocaust and then their children and grandchildren who clearly were in this.
2: I think the generational relationship is really interesting because there was a great tendency in simple human terms in the early decades after the war for those who had been most directly involved in the war, whether as perpetrators or as victims, to simply say, we have psychologically to look forward. We can't bear to talk about this. I think there was... A- an angry debate when the next generation, it was all tied up also in 1960s ideas of revolt, I think, to uh, about the fact that there were seen as great continuities between the Nazi uh, state and uh, West German, particularly West German democracy. So that was all very acrimonious. I think in a way, almost some of the most interesting reckonings have come perhaps through the the grandchildren and, and on. It's not perhaps in that case so much of a rift, but I think they have posed questions at a time when the wartime generations themselves, as they move towards the end of life, have become a bit more receptive. And I think in a way that happens quite naturally to older generations sometimes, they're willing to talk about things that they have kept very quiet, been too painful for a very long time. So I think the interrelationship, perhaps between the grandchildren and the wartime generations has been very interesting and has also been culturally very fruitful. I think it's very interesting to look, for example, at film and TV and other media and indeed the the question of memorials and art and so on as a way of tackling this whereas the judicial system has always struggled with this now some would say this is a this is a substitute this there really should have been a more thorough judicial reckoning but it's a lot of germans would say well it's better than nothing at least in educational terms
1: and does that provide potentially an interesting counterpoint to the uk and places like the us where That generation is seen as, like, the greatest generation and their grandchildren are asked to find out about their war record. It's almost like the reverse there, isn't it, where they're almost like the shameful generation, I guess. Uh,
2: That's exactly right. Yes, it's a very interesting comparison. In Germany, asking what's your... grandparents uh, did during the war, yes, it can sometimes bring out the fact that they might have done some quite heroic things. And another side to this is also a greater understanding that there was more resistance than might have been thought in the past. Previously, there was a concentration on just a few, mainly aristocratic plotters. But actually, for example, on the political left, there was a lot more resistance, which wasn't much talked about in the Cold War because it got caught up in hostility towards communism in general. So sometimes those stories can come out, but at the same time, absolutely, uh, it, it is a very, very sensitive subject. I mean, something as simple, uh, when I've been in Germany, sometimes you go to uh, a town hall, which might have pictures up of previous mayors. And sometimes one of the mayors will be in military uniform from the Second World War. And immediately as, as, as a Brit, you look at that and you think, oh, my goodness, I wonder what that mayor was doing between 1939 and 1945. Uh, and of course, in, in military terms, what's interesting, again, for a long time, it was suggested that it was only elite units, the SS, who were involved in war crimes. But actually, in more recent decades, much more has come out about how the, the, the more regular armies, the Wehrmacht, were involved in, in war crimes or, or supported the system very much. So, so that is still uh, acutely sensitive.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: My job, essentially, was to go in and out of their rooms, clean their wash basins, change their bedding, and talk to them. And within this old people's home, in 1980 in, in, in Berlin, all of German recent history was there.
1: Something else that comes through in your programme is memorialisation. And having, having been to Germany, what do you see as like the most effective memorials to the Holocaust and World War II atrocities?
2: For me personally, I have been very struck the, the move um, away from just what you might call the big special places that you might go to once a year for a ceremony. Yes, they have their role. and For example, there's the um, memorial very much uh, cited deliberately near the Reichstag in Berlin, a uh, memorial to, to the murdered European Jews, and, and now memorials to others, Sinti and Roma, uh, and others who were persecuted there for political reasons and and there was a great emphasis on doing that after the reunification of germany because they were aware there was great anxiety it would reunify germany be again seen as a threat to the world partly because of its history but i think some of the most creative memorials that have emerged quite often from more of the grassroots are those which remind people precisely how mundane and everyday were acts of persecution and how the victims, as well as the perpetrators, were distributed right across society. There are the famous so-called Stolpersteine, stumbling stones, which just mark buildings, a, a little raised uh, brass plaque in the pavement outside where somebody was deported from. And, and, and as the name suggests, you literally stumble across them. And suddenly in the middle of doing your shopping or visiting somewhere, You suddenly look down and you think, oh, that happened here. Or uh, one I think is very effective in in Grunewald, which is a suburban railway station just outside Berlin. They have a platform which isn't marked as a great historical memorial. It's just a platform with a number like the other platforms you might be standing on waiting for your suburban train. But along the edge of that platform are little metal markings which just give uh, a date and say on such and such a date so many people were deported to Auschwitz, to Treblinka, to one of the death camps. And what that makes you realise, as you again come across this almost by chance, is that this was going on next to the routines of suburban life throughout the war, almost to the end of the war, almost in plain sight for those who chose to look. Uh, So I think that all those things, um, other things which just suggests how the whole society, the whole system became compromised, became caught up in this, uh, can be a very valuable kind of memorial.
1: And how far are Jewish groups and groups representing some of the other victims of Nazi atrocity involved in memorialization and also the country coming to terms with its past?
2: I think they are involved uh, to varying degrees, Um I'm not an expert in how a lot of these memorials came to be created, um, but I think there's certainly there is an awareness of the need to consult carefully, particularly if you're the state involved in in, in creating any kind of memorial, that it would be very unwise to, to do this without involving properly the communities. But I think, again, when that's done well, that can be very effective. One really particularly moving thing which I came across making this programme was a Uh, memorial in Brandenburg, about an hour from Berlin, former East Germany, to the victims of early euthanasia programs, the first use of the gas chambers by the Nazis before they were used in the death camps, to uh, murder uh, those with learning difficulties, poor mental health, who were in the sort of horrific German euphemisms seen as unworthy of life. Again, this was happening in a town near to where people were going about their Lives, dance halls, bakeries nearby, etc. And in that memorial, that's been organised by local historians, but also one of the things that goes on there is people themselves with learning difficulty today will organise tours for others around there and will point out photographs and will explain what went on. And I think that's... uh Very unusual, but really very moving, very impressive example of linking the victims or the ancestors of the victims or the equivalent, if you like, of the victims today with explaining this history and just why it matters so much to them and why the rest of the society should listen to their telling of the story.
1: And how pivotal a moment do you think it will be when the final, certainly adult survivors of the Holocaust are no longer with us? How much will that change the way Germany feels about its past?
2: inevitably it will be seen as a big moment in the same way that people notice the the death of the last soldier to fight in the first world war that kind of thing it will be a landmark but i think there will also be a great sensitivity around that too in the sense of saying look this does not mark a point in which we stop remembering what happened there and also it cannot be allowed to mark a point in which we say because there are no longer eyewitnesses to this we therefore somehow doubt this history rather more the whole question of holocaust denial is People will know has as part of the broader question of, of, of fake news, etc., is, is very much with us, and, and I think that the use of eyewitnesses has been very prominent in German education in terms of, of the victims, but and indeed in terms of documentary makers trying to persuade those who were perpetrators sometimes to talk about why they became involved to the extent they did, that can be very effective when done well. So. A lot uh, of the effort that's currently made, I think, is, is, is to preserve those testaments while they're still possible from those who are alive, to ensure that there is a carrying over of that sense of the bearing of witness in a way that won't mean that when we no longer have adults who were direct participants, victims, perpetrators, that's somehow seen as meaning that that history fades away from our consciousness.
1: Now, in the programme, there are some parts where you go to a German school and you you see some lessons taking place. What sense do you get of how the coming generation feel about Germany's Nazi past?
2: In one sense, there is a distance, of course, with each successive generation, but it is very striking how central this remains, I think, to to the German curriculum um, in many ways. And a a very strong idea... uh, developed in western Germany that you educate your citizens through history and you talk about particular things uh, like civil courage which is a very interesting historical question what would I have done living in a totalitarian society and encourage people to think about that historically but also to apply it to the presence that idea that a democracy does not just depend on members of parliament and elections but it depends on the sustaining of an idea of freedom and justice by every citizen and history plays its part in that and I think they are open to that it is of course very interesting for example as Germany becomes uh, a much more mixed society migration and so on migrants now in the education system um, bring a new perspective to that, that the treatment of outsiders the alienation that can be felt they apply that to when they're learning about the Nazi period and that prompts very interesting debate between the present and the past. So I think that's a way in which uh, the newer generations do change the nature of the debate in some ways, uh, as would always be the case that they, they reflect what's going on in their own society. So while in one sense, yes, the enormity of what happened under Nazism is still seen perhaps at times as something which is almost incomprehensible, I think there are also ways in which uh, the newer generations can relate it to, to what's going on now, to the tensions now, to Germany constantly needing to decide what kind of society it is and how reliable are its guarantees of, of fundamental human rights from the bottom up.
1: And how concerned are people there about the, the rise of the far right, I suppose as globally, but particularly in Germany with AfD.
2: There is concern, uh, uh, and I think there is shock, would not be too strong a word at the presence in Parliament of parties that were thought for a long time to be beyond the pale. There always was a fringe in post-war Germany, a sort of neo-Nazi fringe. Now this is seen as something that has entered more into the mainstream, and I think it is uh, very discomforting for those who will talk about what happened to the Weimar Republic to know about how a presence of a certain group in Parliament can unsettle the democracy. At the same time, I think there are others who say, well, maybe it is healthy in the end if people are bringing out this suggestion that Germany doesn't need to talk about this history anymore. It reminds people, some would say, of why this still matters. It guards against complacency. It finally ends, if you like, this idea that really this was too awkward, too embarrassing, we've moved on from this. What is quite striking to me as someone who's visited Germany for several decades now and studied its history and and been there is, is that things which people did talk about more in the past as pure history, the vulnerability of democracies, the danger of extremism, have become more contemporary in people's minds. So that gives an added edge, I think, now to the studying of history. Of course, everyone needs to be careful about hyperbole and, and simply suggesting that anybody who is now uh, the populist right is like a Nazi, that's far too crude. Times have changed, just as to say that today's German is like the Weimar Republic, is is far too crude and, and, and there were major problems with the Weimar Republic and the global slump, et etc., et cetera, which are just not the same. However, I do sense that when I go back now, that there is that idea of here is history, and learning from history is much more than purely academic.
1: Now, this, this may be outside the scope of your programme, but the Germans were aided in the Holocaust by a number of collaborators from Eastern Europe and former parts of the Soviet Union. Do you feel that those countries have come to terms with their past in the same way that Germany has?
2: That, I think that's, that's a very good question, because that's a dimension which I think is still very poorly understood and has come to the fore very much after since the end of the Cold War. The answer would be... I think in many ways, many of those countries are having to go through a process similar to Germany's process since 1945. It is very, very sensitive. And it is more difficult in many ways, particularly when you compare with Western Germany, because these are countries that living under communist rule, lived under a very distorted idea of history. Rather as in the eastern part of Germany, which had a very distorted engagement with the Nazi past when it was communist dominated, it's quite striking that the debate led by populists about the Nazi past has a particular traction often in, in eastern Germany. So there is a real educational problem there, I think, in terms of the resources. And I think it's difficult for countries that for many decades saw the communists... As the great enemy as the great suppressors of freedom would sometimes tend to see those who collaborated with the nazis as in in a sense those who were resisting the communists and therefore had a kind of heroism and so for places in central and eastern europe that went through that it's it's a very fraught debate because to talk about collaboration with the nazis is also for some to be seen to be undermining those seen as national heroes in the resistance to communist domination. So it's partly a reflection of, of the dual horrors, if you like, those societies went through and the very, very difficult legacy which they still uh, have to endure.
1: And I realise that they're not exact equivalents, but do you see any parallels between what Germany's going through and then what countries like Britain and America are trying to get to grips with in terms of their history of the slave trade and slavery?
2: So- Certainly, I think you could make some comparisons. Obviously, as you say, they're, they're very different in many ways. Um, it's perhaps more difficult in some ways for a country like Britain, the United States, used to the idea of being morally superior in the 20th century. And they, you know, they were among the states which defeated Nazism. And it does make a huge difference if you have a, a national narrative that is essentially is about victories and being on 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 the good side of things in more recent history to to acknowledge the much less attractive sides of, of your past whereas after 1945 for germans they knew they were in no doubt if you like that the world saw them as a kind of pariah nation uh and so that did lead to a tendency to to want to not talk about things but i think it also meant that your starting point was a position of if not uh contrition at least an acceptance that this was a a debate which you had to have and the world was going to have about you and there was no avoiding it Um, whereas clearly in Britain and the United States discussion of of slavery is still something which is argued about in, in terms of is this being used to demonize a country did it only affect a relatively small part of the population was the whole society complicit in it in the same way in which Germans talk about nearly all of society being complicit in Nazism? Well, no, but at the same time, it clearly did reach uh, and influence and affect much more of the society than has perhaps hitherto been acknowledged. So these are difficult difficult questions for countries, uh, and we all know how much pride in history is something that politicians like to use. Well, the converse of that is when somebody says something about your past isn't very attractive. <laughs> it, it is difficult, but I think... It is not the same as what the Germans have been through, which was really the idea that an entire society and civilization and culture had been morally compromised.
1: Just finally, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what first got you interested in this, this period of history.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I studied history and German at school and then had some time off before going to university and ended up on a youth exchange scheme, German-British youth exchange scheme, and um, was sent to work in an old people's home in Berlin. And the great thing about that, uh, as I discovered, it wasn't initially seen as very attractive work, but I'd worked with old people before and so was quite happy to do that, Um hard to imagine in today's very internationally minded German society, but in this working class district of Berlin, none of the people in the home spoke a word of English. So I was plunged in uh, and they took great delight in in correcting my very bad German irregular verbs. And my job essentially was to go in and out of their rooms, clean their washbasins, change their bedding and talk to them. And within this old people's home in 1980 in, in, in Berlin, all of German recent history was there. There were uh, communists, it had been quite a communist part of town. There were communists who become Nazis and who'd fought on the Eastern Front. There were Jews who had survived the war. There were liberals who had seen their Weimar Republic world uh, smashed apart, but who still lived in amongst their books and their intellectual idea of a German culture of Goethe rather than a, uh, the Nazi image. So I went round heard these life stories, talked to these people, uh, and discovered the variety of experiences. There were also um, younger uh, members of staff there who had lived through the end of the war as children in the aftermath. I mean, again, a a story not well understood often in, in, in the West, but has suffered horrendous things. The women there who would suffer from the mass rapes by the Red Army when they arrived in Berlin, for example very reluctant to talk about it but one of those things where you learn subsequently that the little bits to do with conversations what they would and wouldn't say were actually about their experience as as young women at that terrible time. So that gave me I think when I went on to study academically uh, German history uh, always a kind of grounding in, in the human stories that were linked to it and the enormous weight of history on these people, but at the same time, the acute sensitivity and difficulty of talking about it. Uh, And I think that's really stayed with me ever since. Plus, the simple question which lies behind all of this in the end, which is, how could this happen? How could a country which was seen in so many ways as sophisticated, cultured, admirable, very close links with Britain, descend into this appalling barbarism. And that just remains the fundamental question which the legal authorities, the historians, memorialists are all still wrestling with.
0: That was Chris Bowlby. Germany, Justice and Memory, airs on BBC World Service on Sunday the 12th of January and it will also be available on BBC Sounds and as a podcast after that. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us again on Monday when Hannah Skoda will be explaining what we've misunderstood about the medieval era.
2: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.